episode 19 of the Metro Fan TV weekly rundown. Well, maybe not so weekly, seeing as how it's the offseason, but it's a weekly rundown nonetheless, ladies and gentlemen. First episode of 2019, and we're coming to you live for the first time in the new year. Lenz and Fernando coming to you from the same places. How are you doing today, Fernando? Tired. Uh, been up pretty early, but besides that, doing all right. Um... Feeling good, I guess. Yeah, it's it's a quiet off season so far, but I, I really wasn't expecting too much, uh, too much to go on. But maybe we'll hear, you know, a thing or two come uh, in the next couple of weeks. And uh, joining us because, of course, ladies and gentlemen, it is draft season this Friday. The MLS draft, and I forget. I have no idea where. I forget. It's not in the East Coast. Maybe it is. Who knows? But joining us to break down the MLS draft is none other than Eric Friedlander. How are you, Freelander? Good, good. And I'm, I can start by well actualing you. It's in Chicago, the draft. <laughs> so. Perfect start, right? I've paid zero attention to the mechanics of like where these things are held. And like I admit, like it's been hard to find this information since I've been back. It it's really just, it just follows the coaching convention, which kind of good now is starting to balance east coast central west coast east coast central west coast so that's how i didn't even know that they had like a coaching convention but seeing as how this league has like a fucking show to reveal its schedule like i shouldn't really be that surprised to feel like this league is so extra sometimes but it's the coaching convention is actually not the league they just it's like all the coaches happen to be there so it's a logical place to have the draft so and funny enough, the coaching convention people who run it don't actually have the same coaching standards as the United Soccer Federation, so they're kind of at odds. That sounds about so, right. U.S. Soccer um, in a nutshell. Yeah, let's dissolve U.S. Soccer, you guys. I don't even know why we watch soccer in this country. But anyway. Um... <laughs> I mean, we do fitness tests. Everything's wrong. What would Javi do? What would Ian Yes do? Dude, that, right? that, that whole tweet thread was ridiculous, dude. Of just people finding... Uh, I don't know. I'm not going to derail the episode in the first two minutes about going to die drive. About My this. favorite was just but... Mo Salah would be passed over because he wouldn't do well in a 30-yard sprint. Oh yeah, all the guys' examples were, were like the fastest players in the world. Like, like, like at least pick someone slow. Like, uh, but anyway, um, talking about draft season, of course, and uh, the 2019 MLS draft is, as I mentioned, imminent. It's upon us once again, and you know, I think uh, it's a, it's a. It's um, what you call it? It's a, it's a mechanic for adding talent that's kind of had its star fall a little bit in the recent years, especially with the addition of things such as Tam and homegrown player deals. But I think in the way that this team has generally looked to add talent, it's still you know, while it may not be as important as it once was, it's still quite a pretty heavily utilized avenue of how we try and add talent, especially to the Red Bull Tool organization. So I think we'll we'll begin our discussion about the draft by looking at this particular facet, right? Because in recent years, strategy-wise, the team generally has used the MLS Super Draft as a way of adding, um, taking flyers and collegiate talent uh, by giving them Red Bull 2 contracts right at the draft, right? I think it'd be pretty solid to say that. And... In particular, like um, the draft spoilers to a degree have been foreshadowed 
by the types of players that they brought in with the Red Bull under 23s. So I think if you look at it as a whole, like I think uh, there's been nothing to really indicate that this is going to be, that they're going to be straying away from this particular strategy of looking at Red Bull under 23 players and then potentially taking them in the draft, right? I think some examples that come to mind last year, Brian White would be one. If I'm not mistaken, Jared Stroud is another. Um, so we can kind of extrapolate from that. And from that, we can kind of have a gander that this year's Red Bull under 23 crop would kind of be similar in that regard, right? Like it's highly likely that we'll be picking maybe one, two, if not three players that were on that roster. Um, and especially if you look at the organizational needs right now, there's an organizational need, I think, at center back at both senior and reserve level, fullback at both senior and reserve level, and I think a bit of extra center midfield depth at Red Bull 2. So I think I would identify these three areas as kind of being the organizational needs going into the draft. So um, I think I'll open up discussion by throwing it out there. Um, from what you guys have seen of the Red Bull under 23s this year, uh, do you really anticipate, who, who do you guys kind of anticipate us uh, having a closer look at? Yeah, for me, it's, there's kind of two people who stand out. It's Sylvain Coco and Emmanuel Kuma. And they both started at that FC Motown Open Cup game that we were at. Coco played like 12, all 12 games or almost every game. And Kuma played like 11. They're both rider players, French internationals, kind of similar Florian Velo track, Jose Aguanaga track, international rider, U23. They were both at the local combine. So those are the two players who kind of stand out as most likely to get picked. I know Kuma, there's some interest, mutual interest. He wants to join. So there's that. Yeah, I think um, the, the, the Ryder University connection in particular has been very um, interesting, right? Because I think it's been pointed out in recent years that um, they've generally drafted from two colleges in the New Jersey area. Um, they've brought in a lot of people from, I think, Ryder, but also Colgate, I think. So it, it's been kind of interesting to see these two universities kind of um, kind of develop into the so-called unofficial, um, one of the so-called unofficial Red Bull finishing schools, I think, for under-23 products. And um, judging f and seeing seeing is how I'm having a look at the roster right now. I think Coco is a defender, which is a clear yeah, need. Yeah, center back. And Kuma played in center midfield for the under-23s and generally looked pretty good doing it, if I'm not mistaken. So... These are definitely two names that I would throw out as well. But considering the strength of the Ryder University connection as well, like I wouldn't put it beyond us to see one, if not both of these guys taken and thrown out thrown in a ripple too to kind of see if they can sink or swim to a degree. So um, I think strategy-wise, um, seeing as how we have four picks this year, and I, I don't really anticipate that we'll be filling out our depth completely through the MLS Super Draft, but definitely taking these guys maybe would 
be kind of huge in helping address some of our depth issues at these positions and potentially looking to groom uh, these guys in the starters down the line. Um, other names that stood out for me, but I don't, cause I don't think he's uh, been, I don't think uh, he's, he's in college just yet. I think you had um, other, uh, you got, you got, had guys like, I think uh, Jordan Bylon and John Murphy, but those guys haven't, uh, entered the college game yet. So, yeah, they just played um, their freshman year. So yeah, so I don't think they'll be leaving college to just yet. Maybe no. I think it'll probably be um, probably be a bit too soon, right? But if either of them kind and anyway, if either of them just kind of catch fire in the coming years, it'd probably be on a homegrown deal, it, like a we've. Uh, like Omir Fernandez has been rumored to be given having caught fire in a sophomore year, but I guess we'll keep an eye out on that for now. Um, but I think looking at the overall um, need, organ- sorry, I'm looking for the overall needs at this organization. I think uh, most of us can identify that the clear needs up and down the, the depth charts here is at center back and full as that center back and fullback. So I think we'll shift the discussion now onto like talking about what to kind of look for when we talk about potential targets in the draft that this team kind of wants. So I think I'm going to phrase discussion in this way. You know, I think we should begin by defining what is a Red Bull center back? Like what are the attributes that we might look for or what do we demand from our center backs position to kind of give people kind of a clear idea of what we may be looking for in um, the center backs that we do take in the draft? So yeah. for me, for me, it's really that Tim Parker, Aaron Longmull, which is obviously easy to say because they were so great, but you're looking for that kind of really physical center back, someone who's strong, can body someone off the ball, but also has that ability to recover quickly and has good top end speed. So you can kind of teach the other stuff, but if they have those physical stat like stature, that's very helpful and it kind of stands out to me as this is what a Red Bull center back should look like. And you can look at Leipzig as well, where they have Upamecano and Kanate, who are both really tall, strong, and physical. And then if you can develop the other skills, then you can create a very complete full center back. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 easy for people to dismiss the importance of uh, athleticism and and soccer and and kind of you know rage along about how American soccer only cares about athleticism, but it's absolutely stupid to think that athleticism isn't important to certain positions, especially depending on how you play. If you are a team that plays a very aggressive high line and presses high, obviously you're going to need uh, more athletic players in certain positions, especially in that back line. We you see a guy like um, like Colin who you know had certain qualities, but when it came down to just even you know the, the most basic uh, athletic trait, which is just being quick and having something that resembles pace, he just didn't have, and that's why he he struggled after his foot injury because he just lost so much of that. Um, he also didn't seem as as physical as as he was. He kind of lost that 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 physical dominance and and uh, his his ability to you know really get up in the air and, and, and win some balls in the air seem to have diminished too after that. So, you know, that, that's, that's something 
I think is very important that people have to, you know, keep in mind when it comes to certain guys that we look for is, you know, basic traits of, of, of athleticism is still going to be hard, whether you're talking about pace, you're talking about, you know, uh, having a, just a good physical presence. Well, I think uh, one notable attribute that I think that kind of gets overlooked from time to time, I think uh, on um, the center back, on what we demand from our center backs is I think there's been this tacit of composure that is demanded, right? Like not just this on terms of like uh, the center backs have needing to be comfortable on the ball in terms of distribution, but also in terms of being able to kind of not panic when the ball, when they receive the ball in possession, right? Because like if you look at the acquisitions that they made recently, like these are all guys who have this level of poise on the ball. You know, like they don't just hoof it out of play as soon as they win. Win it back in the press. Instead, they're looking to settle and then get it on to a midfielder as soon as possible in order to begin the transition as quickly as possible. You know, so I think I agree here that I think physical attribute-wise, the most important part of having ripping. Sorry, no, the most important attribute that we look for in our center backs is obviously foot speed. You know, pace and acceleration very important. But you know, they can't just be. I mean. That to a degree, like you can't just be um, fast in you can't just be fast and have that kind of serve as your crutch the whole way, right? You kind of also need oh, to know how to weaponize that speed, you know, and that's where positional sense comes in, and that's where the instincts come yeah. in to know how to play emergency defense well. The and other that's where kind of comes into it. But go ahead. The other thing is kind of like that ability to defend in space. Because you see our center backs, we, they get pulled wide. There's so much 1v1 opportunities where there's a lot of space. So if you have that kind of awareness to know how to defend in space, how to even just position your body to slow down the attacker in front of you and then let your fullbacks, let your midfielders recover, even that that's a huge trait because just in our system where our center backs are constantly exposed to these 1v1 situations where the attacker has the, almost an entire half of the field to work with. So that's the other big thing is that ability to defend in space, make a tackle, not jump into a tackle too soon and be completely burned. So some knowing how to read the game and be do well in a lot of open space, that's the other big thing to go along with so someone who has those kind of three things athleticism solid build and then can defend in space you'll get a solid defender from and even if they're not the most composed on the ball i can kind of live with it because we have defenders who like tim parker is great in open space he's great physically but he's an okay passer he's just that's just who he is yeah. I think this is what makes Long so so I guess kind of unique and what makes him so good and fit so well with with how this team plays because you know he is a defensive mid that was transitioned to a center back so he knows how to just naturally be composed in a ball he knows how to just kind of naturally um uh, uh be able to handle pressure in certain moments he knows uh, kind of just ha- to, how to have that awareness and and that that sense of positioning and and just have that that non center back uh, type of traits, but then tie that into with obviously having a lot of good center back traits as well. He's tall, he's physical, he's very fast for a center back. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, athleticism obviously is not the most important thing or the only important thing, definitely not. 
it's important to have all the other pieces, but all of those pieces are still very, very important. That's why this team is so specific with the type of players they get. And the same can be said for any position. Our fullbacks require some pretty specific uh, traits and characteristics that, you know, you may be a, a great fullback in one system, but you may not fit how we want to play. You can be a good defensive mid in another system, but you may not fit how, you know, the traits that we need for our, how our defensive mids play. Same thing goes for wings and same thing goes for our attacking mids. And I, I think sometimes a lot of people forget that, you know, this team plays in a very aggressive way. And, and even though there are other high pressing teams, how aggressive this team plays at high press is a little bit unique. And it definitely kind of forces you to, to drill down a little bit more into very specific roles that you absolutely must have. Um, otherwise, it's going to cause a lot of problems. Yeah. Um, I think you guys bring up a really key point here about our center backs almost operating as both fullbacks and center backs in defense to a degree, right? The amount of space that they have to cover. So not only do they kind of uh, have to be be dominant in the center, but they also have to have the requisite pace to deal with players out wide as well, simply because of the sheer amount of ground that they have to cover. So I think... I think I would say that the kind of collegiate player that they would be looking for at, that plays this position would be someone who has the physical attributes but can learn the technical aspects of the position as they kind of go along. Because that's what Red Bull 2 is kind of for, right? And I think it's notable in recent years, I think, that um, in terms of the development pipeline, we've churned out a number of midfielders. And we've churned out a number of really good forward slash attackers. But center back has always been a bit of a tricky position to develop internally. And I think this has kind of been one of the more notable um, parts um, of our development pipeline to degree. Because I think the, the, when you look at success stories from internal development, internally developed center backs, I think the list kind of... Uh, starts with Aaron Long and ends somewhat at Hassan and Dumb. You know, there's been a, re- a lot of churn at that position um, at Red Bull 2, I think, over the past few years. So there seems to be something about center backs, I think, at, in our system where they kind of seem to be a bit more like flyers on a year to year basis. So, um, Kind of an interesting thing to kind of look out for, but I still think that. Yeah. Um, yeah I, I no, think I think you. No, I think you make a good point about bringing up Hassan Adam because he's someone who they spend a lot of time on on developing, and I think it became obvious this season. Even though he had a pretty, I think in the second half he had a pretty solid season. There were definitely, and he even did good in you know the the very few. Um, First team appearances, I mean, he did. He had V in his fucking pocket. Um, was it V or was it? Uh, it was V. No, it was V. It was V, right? Yeah. And the Open Cup. And game. that's right. That's right. Um, you know, so yeah, I mean, he 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 did good, but I feel like there were still some glaring issues that I don't think were possible to iron out. Yeah. Like there were just some there were just some physical things that he just like his recovery speed. 
it 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 is what it is. It just it just wasn't there, and that's very very important to how this team plays. Um, his emergency defending sometimes was a little bit questionable, and his defending yeah, at times yeah. could be awkward and inconsistent. Mentally, he was inconsistent, so he would make he would step when he should, like too aggressively when he really shouldn't and doesn't need to do that, leaving space in behind. So little like the really little minute details didn't really improve and they were inconsistent all year long. And that could have been partially center back partnership or he had that kind of rotated a lot at RB two. But to go back to your original point lens about like not producing center backs, I think one of the center backs I feel is very is one of those where the system is very important. Like you can't mold a a center back who's not a right fit for the system to the system. So the academy, all the center backs that are kind of in the college game and have been in the college game aren't really having gone through the academy system where they're in our current Red Bull global system. They kind of were already past that or they might have played U23, but even U23, they doing a very modified version of the system because it's the summer league. So on that note, it could start changing because now some of the kids, the current U19s, the current U17s have been in the system for two, three years already. So they kind of have a better understanding and they have been already weeded out if they don't fit at the youngest level. Yep. Yeah. We've talked a couple of times about, you know, kind of this exciting uh, point in the future where we're going to start seeing full EDS Academy kids. And if there is a position that I think we might benefit the most, it's going to be the center back position because it is so hard to find center backs from outside who fit how this team plays. And we've locked out pretty well with Parker and long and, and uh, you know, a couple of other ones, but um, to be able to develop internally that, that position would be massive because it's such an important position. And, you know, a lot of times you might have to pay a little bit. If there's a position where, if there's a defensive position where you're going to be willing to spend a little bit of money, it's going to be in a center back spot. So the fact that we can develop that, uh, hopefully with the next couple of years and not have to spend, you know, some massive, huge, uh, a contract like Parker just got on, on, on that and kind of just let that be a position of churning as long as you're consistently developing those guys, that would be absolutely massive for us. Same goes for outside backs. It's kind of yeah. one of those that's more specialized. You're really looking for a, a certain type of skill set. No, yeah, certainly. And I think this is where I think my point about moldability comes in, right? Because I think until those guys who have been kind of learning the system in the academy start coming up through the collegiate ranks, like we're going to be looking for... When it comes to guys outside of the system that we identify and look to develop, I think they'll be looking at the moldability of the physical tools and then how looking at how well they can potentially, I think the ceiling will be set. The physical tools set the ceiling, but the realization of the ceiling comes from understanding the tactical side of how we want to play is what I would kind of define it as being. But of course, that ceiling would also be kind of limited to degree, as we mentioned earlier, if they can't do anything once they receive the ball of possession. I mean, like, yeah, sure. Tim Parker's not an, like an all world passer. He's not great at distributing. But to a degree, like he makes the right decision on the ball more often than not, you know, even though he'll misplace a pass here and there. I don't remember too many um, glaring giveaways from him or um, 
moments where he got caught out in possession uh, as soon as he uh, won the ball back and uh, gifted it right back to the opposition, right? So I think with these things in mind, uh, some names that I've heard being thrown around, I think, um, looking at the center back position, one of the names that I think people found interesting from the combine was uh, none other than Prosper Figby from the University of Virginia. And I think when it comes to physical tools, right, this is going to be one of those guys, I think, that really, um, whose names really um, come off, um, stand out on the list, right? Yeah. I think he looked really impressive at the combine. And he's already gained a lot of um, buzz because of just how, mu- how much physical tools he has. I think it would be it would be safe to say, yeah. but I think what was notable is that he may take up an international slot if he's selected, if I'm not mistaken. So um, I guess that's one name to kind of uh, keep an eye on. Uh, you guys have uh, anything else come to mind from what you've I'm, seen? Or I'm a big Prosper Figby fan from what I've seen. I've watched some of his tape from when he was at University of South Florida. A lot of really good like long diagonal switches balls his passing's kind of underrated because his physical tools are really good he's 6'2 195 i think everyone who comes out of virginia seems to be built like a tank him and kofi (laughs) just literally the (laughs) hunches of people (laughs) but at the combine he really impressed because he one he should have had an assist he played a perfect like 60 yard ball through ball from defense to forward the Guy had it one-on-one with the goalie and missed. Perfect ball. And then just physically, he kind of reminded me of Lala Sabubakar from Columbus. Oh, yeah. But more athletic. So he's kind of like a... Wow. He's strong. He knows how to use his body, which sometimes you see these big kids and they don't actually really know how to body someone off the ball, shield the ball out of bounds, but he really knew how to use his body. The only thing that worried me was kind of positionally at the end of the game, he was kind of drifting in and forward back, wasn't holding the line, but some that's like little things that gets worked out when you have chemistry with your center back partners. So he, you know, it's funny, man. He really so impressed. Good. And Ivis Galarsa has him going to us in his mock draft, but for what it's worth. He to the Red Bulls. The us. Yeah. Oh, Okay. I was just going to say that it's, it's funny you mentioned about like kind of just knowing your size and, and knowing, you know, how to use that. I feel like that's a problem that Parker has sometimes. Like he's such a big dude. And I just, sometimes I just wonder like, dude, how did you just get bossed the way you just did? If you're talking about, it doesn't have, if you're talking about not knowing how to use your size, like this Marcus Holgerson bring back memories, you guys. Yeah. I mean, and Dom <laughs> kind of similar. And Dom was, he was, he's six, six, but he, he looked awkward because sometimes he didn't, know how to use his height to his advantage, know how to, and he was young. He's only 19. So that you kind of learn some of that as you play more games. Yeah. I, I, I think, I think some of the flaws that we, that we, that we, uh, that you would see with him aren't as glaring or aren't as important. If he's playing with a team yeah. that doesn't demand so much from the center backs, if, if, if he, if he at pretty much any other team where you're not playing such a high press and you're not, doing so much emergency defending and all that stuff, I think he would really shine. But, you know, not to be the dead horse here. He just – I think it was pretty obvious that he just wasn't someone who was going to uh, develop into yeah. exactly what we need. 
I mean, like, yeah, I'd definitely describe, I, I would have described them as being a bit more of like that traditional old school center back just kind of sits a bit deeper and um, it'd probably be better suited for a deeper back line is what I'm trying to say. Um, yeah. But I think when and, it, and, and, and in that deeper back line, you're able to, I guess, learn how to use your body more because you're plant, you're, you're a little more planted. You're a little, you're kind of just settled in. You're not, you know, speeding down, you know, speeding down the field, trying to, trying to, you know, chase after someone or, or, or stay a little bit ahead of them while at the same time trying to learn how to, you know, body them off the ball without, you know, getting a foul and stuff like that. So everything kind of slows down when you're playing a little bit deeper as a center back. So you're not, you have a little more time to think before you can do stuff, you know? There are a couple other people who just stood out to me in terms of like, sometimes it's just as little as when I'm watching the combine games, they make a sliding tackle. That's a kind of a recovery tackle. And it triggers a memory in my head. So the, couple of people are Roy Boateng from UC Davis. He's kind of another one in that Prosper Figby mold. A little less hench. He's a little skinnier, but he's still kind of very physically gifted. Has good athleticism. Wouter Verstappen. He's an international. He came up in the PSV youth system. Went to Pacific. He would take up an international spot, but with Red Bull, that's not as big of a concern because anyone getting drafted by them is going straight to like a USL contract. I think Jesse said last year when they draft, he was asked about Brian White. He said, he'll make a really good Red Bull two player like on draft day. No, they didn't even like make any (laughs) attempt to make it seem like he was going to sign with the first team right away. (laughs) So the international spots, I think USL has limits, but it's like on the game day roster is not as much as like, the whole roster when you only have like 10 people on your roster it's not a huge deal so Wouter Verstappen he looked very calm on the ball he's not as much of the athlete but he looked understood where to be he defended 1v1 well and the last one what was the name now I'm blanking on the name but I think uh you know it's interesting that you bring up the PSV connection because you know like fuck being the IX of MLS like <laughs> we we <laughs> we we are the PSV of MLS. Nah, just joking. But um, I think uh, let me see. I I I, I had a point, but I'm also blanking right now. It's early, you guys, and we haven't done an episode in a few weeks. Like I'm sorry, like we're a bit rusty right now. But um, <laughs> um, I think yeah, that's an interesting point that gets brought up actually when it comes to um international slots because I think and particularly the role of the USL team in doing this, because we're not really um, drafting with the same limitations as I think other teams in MLS might be, because we know, because like, like you said, like we know every single one of the guys that we take in the draft is going to go to USL, you know, and they're going to be, they're going to be subject to um, different roster regulations. And, you know, I think it's very useful having the reserve team there for that, because we can just kind of take, um, it means that we, we are free to take whoever and just stash them in the reserve team. Like we're not really operating with as much uh, restrictions as you might see from other teams here. Um, but I yeah, think, I, I, I think that, I think that pipeline is, and, and, and it's really what, what differentiates this team from so many other teams. I mean, so many teams in this league don't even have their own direct reserve team. They have, you know, affiliates. So you, the draft is essentially pointless because 
I mean, again, even with us, anyone that we pick, they're not going to be with the first team. It's going to be an RB2 contract. So if you're a team that doesn't have that, you have an affiliate, I guess you can just send them down to your affiliate, but you don't have as much control because that affiliate is still their own organization. They're, they still want to win. They still want to do things the way they want, you know, the way they feel they need to, you know, they need to day to day. Whereas we have complete control over Red Bull too. It, it, the whole po- the whole point of their existence is to develop. So we have the ability to have a very specific style of play, look for very specific people, get the best possible players you can who fit that mold, and just fill a roster that needs to be filled every year anyway with Rebel Two, and just develop them. See, you know, throw shit at the wall and, and see what sticks, and see who you can develop. And if they're good enough, they will find their way into the first team. We have multiple guys who have gone through that route at this point. You know, and there's not that many teams, if any, that have such a a clear and intentional and obvious uh, and important uh, system to to how they function. You know, a lot of a lot of other teams, again, they don't have their own reserve team, and even some that do have a reserve team, it's kind of just like, yeah, let's just kind of just see what happens, and okay, that's it. Yeah, I think the um, aspect of executive control is very important to uh, the whole organizational philosophy because, you know, like, as you mentioned, these other affiliates may not play their kids because they're struggling for a playoff spot. I mean, the coach's or, job is on the line. Like, yeah, the coach's job is on the line. Exactly. So USL coach momentum, like reason to play some lone kid that he has for three weeks. <laughs> yeah, right. Whereas um, for us, like, yeah, I mean, Wooly goes in knowing that he is going to be emphasizing playing kids, making sure that they all get playing time and keeping a closer track on your progress as players, right? So the... Look, w- w- the, uh, he's, w- he's paid to troll sometimes. <laughs> Wait, what? He's paid to troll sometimes. I mean, there, there there's times where he will intentionally bench a player even if they've been playing well just to see how they react mentally oh, yeah, i don't know about that <laughs> but i think um, he does like he can oh, no, he, play he's, he's alluded he's alluded to that before he's alluded to to him him making roster decisions to intentionally test the 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 how players are going to react mentally that it's not just only about about them you know, developing them on the field and, and and how they are playing the game but also how they react to things you know, on the bench and, and, and off the field. Right. And I think that's where we talk about developing those like sort of mental slash intangible aspects of uh, being a player. You know, I think you have this level of executive control that allows you to breed this very competitive spirit where guys are fighting for a spot on the depth chart and everyone will have some kind of, uh, you know, time to audition for a starting spot. But I think... Um, we're going to be shifting our attention. We're going to be forging ahead, actually, to, I think, sort of the next um, position of, I think, some worry uh, within the organization. And I think you guys mentioned it earlier, but fullback in the Red Bull system is a very, is probably the most demanding position, I would say. Center back is definitely very demanding, but fullback is probably the most defend- most demanding in the system because. <clears throat> not only do you have that um, aspect of emergency defense in terms of needing to make all these recovery runs, but you also need to be really comfortable going forward on the ball. I think even more so. Um, We saw this in the playoffs this year where not 
everyone, I think, is cut out to be a Red Bull fullback in this day and age. And we saw that... Um, to their to the best of the ability to put the fullest system in. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> they can pull it off, but we're going to have to be making compromises. We saw it with Cutler and Lee. Like when Cutler was in, he barely went past halfway, and they adjusted how they played. And the teams we played when he was in weren't as good. But they definitely, if they don't have their two, Mario and Kamar on the wings, they definitely will. Less so when Duncan was in, but when they had Cutler and Lee, they adjusted. So you can't play to the max ability. You can't go full EDS. Yeah, no. Without. I, I, I definitely agree with that because, um, you know, like our fullbacks do such an important job of pinning back the opposition into a more compressed space when it's fully realized because of how high they push up the field. And I think, you know, like it, it, it shows like you need to have these two way instincts, but you also need to be an athlete. And I think when I, I, I mean, Amir isn't as much of an athlete as Kamar is, but because his attacking instincts are so good he kind of defends by being such an offensive threat that the the opposition's fullback is essentially pinned back because he has to respect his ability on the ball and to create off the dribble so much, right? I think this is what I would think would be fair to say. So in a fully... He's also 6'2", so every stride covers a lot more ground, yeah, yeah. <laughs> which Kamar's... helps him. Uh, Amir. <laughs> uh yeah, he is, yeah, he's pretty tall. No, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, like, Amir is sneaky fast, I would say. You know, like, maybe he doesn't quite have the same explosiveness as Kamar. But once he gets up to speed, like, uh, you know, he definitely does have the capacity to cover a lot of ground. But He's quick enough where you never really have to worry about, like, you know, if you, if you see a winger just hauling ass on the side, you, you kind of just, as long as Amir wasn't caught sleeping, there's really nothing to worry about. He'll, he'll almost always catch up. He yeah. rarely gets beat. Yeah, so, but but I would say like uh, the those two kind of serve as the templates for what we may be potentially looking for, right? So I, I think ultimately that's the point that I'm coming um, down on here. So we're looking for guys who have the potential for that two way game, but it also boils down to guys who like I think we're gonna we're gonna be seeing this theme recur a lot, but we're gonna it also comes down to guys who have bags and bags of speed in our system because of just simply the sheer amount of ground they're going to need to cover shuttling up and down their respective flank the whole game. Um, and it also enables them to play the kind of recovery defense that we demand from our fullbacks once the ball gets turned over in the opposition field, right? Because you kind of have to see a lot of moments this year where you had our fullbacks chasing down a winger who was breaking the other way, right? And that's how Kamar Lawrence murder tackles became a meme because that's just like what he does. He tracks back and puts in a fucking great tackle and ends the threat right there. So um, I think a lot of names, uh, a name that was on a lot of people's lips going to the draft uh, was a certain Wolverine by the name of Marcelo Borges, who we then um, passed on even before the draft began, which I think kind of caught a lot of people off guard because... Uh, I think there was a, some semblance of buzz that uh, Borges would be our our next homegrown signing, um, but 
the ship seems to have kind of sailed on him from our organization. Organization straight up saying that they're not interested in taking him. So, yeah, this is kind of a bit more of a curious um, position for us to fill. I think not a lot of uh, I haven't been heard, not a lot of buzz. I think at this position. So I'm kind of be interested to kind of hear about what either the rumor mill or uh, the collegiate watchers have been saying with regards to this position. Like, do you have anything to fill us in on? Or uh, outside back is kind of a tough one because the there's a ton of really decent ones in the draft, but I don't know if any you want to take in the first round. Who are like it's either there's some really top of the line ones who are going higher in the first round. And then ones you would kind of say they're like second round type picks, third round. But we don't have a second round pick, so it's kind of trying to figure out who may fall to the Red Bulls in the third round, who would be a good first round pick, who's like you don't want to reach really because you can pick best available. We're not don't have to pick by need. Right. So it's kind of been tough to figure out who like is actually possible for the Red Bulls. Like the best a guy who would be great is Akeem Ward, but he's considered top three, top two outside back, top fifteen pick, top twenty pick. We're drafting twenty two, I think. So he's kind of outside of our potential area that we would pick in. So that's been the toughest part is kind of finding who's actually like a realistic target. So I only have one on my like list and it's Sean McSherry. He's from Princeton kind of local never really played with u23 despite being from new jersey so that could be something they know about him they just always pass but he looked decent at the combine he got up and down really well his decent speed decent ability around the box it wouldn't be the worst flyer to take rebel to see if he sticks if he doesn't on to the next one he's a right back that's about it as far as like outside backs. There's like Logan Gadula is a solid one from Wake Forest, but he might not be the best. He's more of a Chris Duval type. Is a good comparison for him. Akeem Moore, we mentioned. John Nelson is a generation Adidas, but he's probably not a great fit because he doesn't have that top end athleticism, which is maybe a reason why they pass on Borges is he's a little injury prone and he doesn't have he's very good on the ball, can use both feet, can combine. So he kind of has the offensive side of what you're looking for in a Red Bull fullback. And he's smart around the box, but he doesn't have that elite top-end sprint speed that can help him recover defensively. So he kind of checked some, but not maybe the more important box, which yeah. is that defensive speed. And Yeah. I think maybe if I'm spitballing here, like, uh, I mean, I think as you mentioned, um, it's not really, we're not really looking to draft so much for organizational need, maybe as much as other teams might be. But considering how thin we might be at fullback and considering how um, we have a lot of assets that we haven't quite used yet, you know, I think... What, what, what I'm going to float this possibility out there. Like, I'm not really, um, I, 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 I'm not really sure like how likely this is to happen, but I mean, I wouldn't put it, I wouldn't begrudge them for maybe floating a bunch of Tam or Gam or something to potentially move up in the draft 
or acquire a second round pick to potentially take a guy at this position who becomes available, right? I think like that's one possibility that I think we maybe haven't discussed, but uh, partially because I think we, we don't really um, make, I think, um, trades for draft picks a bit too much in this organization recently. But I definitely do think that that's one potential avenue that we could explore when it comes to talent acquisition at the draft. Because we do have a ton of Tam and Gam um, that we're kind of sitting on right now. So I think in a potential situation where someone that um, where someone who they really admire becomes available and a team might a team earlier than this in the pecking order may not want him. I mean, like, yeah, I mean, I'd say, you know, just give like maybe seventy five thousand dollars in Tam or Gam move up and try and take a dude to see if he can turn him into something in Ripple 2. I think I wouldn't really put that possibility yeah. beyond it. Yeah, I, I think maybe some of that could potentially depend on how desperate they are at the first team uh, the first team spots with, with regards to the fullback. I, I think them picking up Amaro is very intentional because he can play uh, as a leftback, so you've pretty much filled two two depth uh, pieces there. Either he could fill in as a center back or he can fill in you know, uh, on the left back, um, he could play as an outside center back and a three in the back. So he, that one person covers a little bit of a uh, little bit of depth uh, because of how versatile he, versatile he is. What I'm curious about though is uh, Giannis and what's happening with him. I know, I know Joe uh, put out an article that apparently um, he John, is in talks. John put it out. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, that's right. That's right. I'm sorry. Read John put it out. Hey, you, you gotta give the right people credit. You gotta yeah, yeah, no, right I, no, I want to make sure I get that right. Yeah, um, but yeah, he he spoke to him, and and you know, this is a couple of weeks ago, or maybe even a month ago, where, um, you know, they were in talks. We haven't heard anything since then, but I can't help but get the feeling that if they feel like they're getting at us back, then that's someone who could potentially have a quicker path to the first team, which then makes them maybe a little bit less desperate to get the best possible person with the best possible outside back yeah. in the draft. Um, you know, we still have Duncan coming back this year. So in the, if let's say theoretically uh, Giannis is coming back and we have Duncan, I mean, both of those are, are one of them at least is definitely starting quality uh, a depth. Giannis could be pretty, pretty quickly. I mean, I think he did uh, very good in the second yeah. half of, if he um, has a good preseason camp. He could quickly. definitely. So, onto that first team roster yeah so if that ends up becoming a reality well we have two obviously i mean best possible fullbacks we could have in, in kamar and amir but then we have a very very good uh uh duncan for depth we have a potentially very good Giannis to uh, to fill in a depth spot we have amro filling a depth spot as well and so all of a sudden now like yeah and laid for a label put in a shift you can't deny him that yeah yeah, I mean, look, Especially I, I know CC, I ragged early CCL days. If you need someone to just kind of put in a shift, you can rely on Lee to give you. You don't want him starting the biggest games, but mid-season MLS game, U.S. Open exactly. Cup, you can rely on Lee to like give a good, hard effort, workmanlike effort. I know I ragged quite a bit on 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 him uh, against Atlanta. But that really was pretty much worst possible scenario. Atlanta was said this before. Atlanta was probably the only team in the league that could have exposed that gap between Kamar and Laid than really any other team, and the, and at the level that they did. 
outside of that, Lee did pretty pretty decent for the most part. He actually had some very good games this year. Oh, sorry, last year. So he's still a viable option. So personally, I think that fullback spot in the draft is going to potentially depend on where they feel um, they are with Giannis. Yeah. If he's out of the picture already and we don't know, I could see them maybe dropping some allocation money to bump up the list and maybe get someone who they feel is really, really somebody that they can kind of put their paces and, and, and maybe um, you know develop at a, at a fast rate. Um, but if they feel he is in the picture, or Giannis is in the picture, I don't think we have much to worry about in the fullback spot anymore then. Yeah, I don't think, at least from a first-team perspective, fullback's the most important. So even then, they would still kind of be drafting someone for the two-team. But if they were to, in theory, trade up, I wouldn't be against trading, like using that 50K we got from Endom in the expansion draft and turn it into another RB2 player, be it a second-round pick, and we pick a guy like McSherry or even trade in like trade our first round pick in 50k because supposedly I think I saw Ivis reporting that the trades the allocation money for trades are not going to be like last year I think it was around in the hundreds of thousands that people were looking for in Tam and Gam whatever but now it's kind of leveling out to sub 100,000 for moving up into the draft so turning the Endom 50K, that's nothing really, into another yeah. RB2 flyer, I wouldn't be against that. Yeah, I, I, and, and, I can, and I can imagine teams being like a little more susceptible to maybe wanting to do it since a lot of play, a lot of teams don't really use their draft, fisk, their draft yeah, picks to begin with. The next day. They, yeah, like they would I – ima- I could see a team very much preferring $75,000 and whatever allocation money instead of picking up some you know random draft player that's never going to see yeah, any minutes with their first team. Yeah, I think um, – you know, like this, this depreciation, I think, of draft picks in, on the open market, right? I think it kind of does work to our, to our advantage to that, to that degree. <clears throat> Whoa, excuse me. Wow. Um, it works to our advantage <laughs> to that degree. Um, because, you know, like this provides us an avenue of adding even more cheap talent to our ranks, right? And generally, I think in a way like this is good for us because we can have the luxury of betting on our own talent development pipeline because there's a proven concept that work that churns out really good first team, first, first team quality players. And if we turn 50K of GAM for a draft pick into someone who can contribute regularly as even just a depth player for the first team, like that would have exceeded any value that we could have used that 50K for otherwise, you know? And I think like it would be an interesting to kind of see if they use this excess of allocation money to try and do exactly that, you know, like... Uh, maybe work their ways into um, maybe this is how they circumvent um, the uh, de- the uh, development territory thing before the development territories get lifted. Right. You see them looking to acquire a bit few more draft picks to take flyers and dudes in um, college from teams who don't really want to use to draft, who don't really want to use the draft picks as much, which I think is another th- interesting thing that we um, look to when we talk about um when we talk about having the benefits of having such a fully weaponized reserve team, such as this, you know, I think this is one interesting possibility. Again, I don't know how likely it is that we actually do this, but maybe you do see 
um, us doing some draft fuckery this year. Who, who really knows? Yeah. I mean, they've been collecting fourth-round picks, so... <laughs> Yeah, no, that's yeah. true. I mean, like- and, and and one thing to remember is this is apparently, well, supposedly, um, the last or potentially the last uh, uh, combine. So I don't know if they're going to. Uh, I could imagine at some point if they're going to get rid of the combine, that I can imagine within the next couple of years them just kind of get getting rid of the draft entirely. I think they'll keep the draft, but the combine, like now, most almost every MLS team have some sort of scouting department. And a lot of them have U23 teams. Like the Red Bulls run two combines a minimum each year. They ran one in the summer. They run one in the winter for local-ish players that kind of congregate them. Plus they have the U23 team. Plus they have a whole handful of scouts and scouting networks. And then you see stuff like the soccer syndicate who are a scouting network that are starting up and they're working directly with teams to kind of have a like outsource your scouting to a scouting network, which I think now we're going to have, there's going to be so many more in-depth ways to scout that congregating 60 players in one spot to play two pickup games and a training session won't be as useful as just having general winter meetings for the GMs. Yep. Yeah. For the price too. Like they're putting all these kids up in hotels and whatnot. It's yeah. Expensive. Yeah. yeah. No, I, I, I think, um, Actually, wait, no, sorry. Um, one thing that just came to mind, actually, like talking about this, is that um, we mentioned the under-23 drafting strategy at the top of the episode, but in recent years, we've kind of gone off the board a little bit and taken in a slightly less heralded um, prospects um, from other schools that aren't necessarily in our area. And uh, the story that kind of comes to mind when I talk about this is when we selected Tom Barlow from Wisconsin and he had to be, and he had to be informed that he was chosen because he was at home, right? Yeah. I think when he was selected, oh, he wasn't yes. even at yeah. the combine, so he wasn't even like he could have interviewed with the team. I know they like like Cutler was at home too, but he was at the combine, so he kind of could have inter- He probably interviewed with the Red Bulls at the combine, and so he kind of knew what you kind of know what teams are interested in you prior yeah. to entering draft day. Yeah, and I think that's what kind of this is sort of like the wild card for me when we talk about potential like draft picks is because we have shown that we're we if we want to we're gonna go off the board to choose players that we think will fit us better than others, right? So I would anticipate, and this is one of my first predictions I think for anyone listening, right, is that expect a couple of surprises in the later rounds you know i think we're gonna be choosing we're gonna be choosing like two uh, there's a potential that we're gonna be yeah three players guys don't forget there's there's also some trades that happen too yeah during draft day so i i i I wouldn't be surprised if we see some 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 movement from uh from this team even outside of just a draft just weird trades Um, going on because you know everyone's there, all of all of them are there, and that that's when he start. You know, that's the best thing about the draft. Chat. You kind of can like sit in the room and you're watching these GMs run around talking, disappearing. I remember at one point last year, like Dennis Hamlin was just like not in the room for the first fifteen picks of the draft, and everyone was like, "Where did he go? Oh, like, yeah. Where is this dude, Dennis? Yep. You're here. You're going going draft." <laughs> like, <laughs> 
I was in line for a sandwich at Reading Terminal when they announced the David Akam trade. So yeah, that was pretty fucking wild, wasn't it? Yep. Like, <laughs> and Wally just eating my sat and ate his popcorn in the back, not even involved in the draft. All the coaches, <laughs> the video guy in a suit, Wally in a brown coat eating popcorn. Must have had 10 bags. <laughs> the popcorn, they always hook it up with the popcorn at the draft. So if you're in the Chicago and want free popcorn, go to the draft. Just, just go to the draft in general, you guys. Like, it's a really fun experience. Yeah. Like, if yeah. the next time it comes around to the East Coast, like, no one actually, like, really um, knows what to expect from the draft anyway. So you you're do. really just there for a good time. You basically get the shit post in person yeah and no one (laughs) (laughs) this is is the only reason why i kind of want the draft to stick around is because you know it's a good it's it's good banter it's like where else can you get meet what's his the curtain from philadelphia walking out of bathroom while holding a supporter shield and go hey you're not going to get this yeah (laughs) literally (laughs) as he walked he had the he called security he called security because we were standing outside the bathroom. Security walks into the bathroom and escorts him out. Or we had, or when we had the the legend armada. was born of Shamu, the hardest working security guard. The, the whole armada of uh, Mike Petke's guards as well, running into Mike Petke in the elevators in Philadelphia was a oh, yeah, very special yeah. moment, I think, for a lot of us who went down to uh, Philly last year for the draft. Um, it kind of just is like the essence of MLS 1.0 is still alive in the draft where it's sufficiently small where that you're going, you could go to the urinal next to any like MLS GM or coach. They're all in the lobby. Like you can just run into them walking up the escalator. Yes. Like it's so brings you back to kind of that early MLS days where the giant stadium bubble and both teams had to do autograph sessions after the game. It's so still <laughs> like small scale that you kind of, Everyone who's anyone in American soccer is there. Yeah, so it's, yeah, it's just it's a good like, time. It's, it's like fucking. Um, it's like it's like uh, what should we call it? Um, soccer nerd convention. Yeah, I was trying to think of it. Oh, it's like Comic Con. It's, it's, like it's, like it's like Comic Con for soccer American soccer nerds, basically. Yeah, like Soccer Con. Soccer Con. Yeah. Fuck they should you, do Blizzard that. Con. Honestly. Like, fuck <laughs> Screw the coaching part. Just have Soccer Con. <laughs> Can we have a panel with like Don Garber where we get to ask him about all the shady ad- like getting away with murder with Don Garber would be a great like convention like, would be a great panel I would like to attend that if possible. Bobby uh, Warshaw, I actually hate my co-host. <laughs> <laughs> I survived Matt Doyle, uh, the Bobby Warshaw story. <laughs> Okay, we've gone off the rails a little bit, but um, uh, I think uh, not even the end yet. Yeah, the wow. last one was center mids, right? Center mids, the last, the last position. Yes. The last was center mids, and uh, I think specifically, I'm going to break it down into two um, different things here because I think we're pretty set in attacking midfield. One one aspect of the team that's pretty well filled out at Red Bull Two is the attacking midfield spots because of uh, Moreno, Stroud. And uh, Mines. yeah, Mines coming down from first team, and of course Striker as well, because I think Tom Barlow is probably going to be the man. They call and White will probably see time there because exactly. Anna Bong maybe. Yeah, so I think. And if Omir sh- Fernandez scores, that's another signs. That's another winger. So yeah, exactly. Like I certainly think that ten. That's about it. Yeah, 
I think when it comes to attacking midfield and striker, we're pretty set. And uh, I mean, we didn't really get to talk about goalkeepers earlier, but we only really need like a second string goalkeeper for Red Bull too. Yeah. And we sign undrafted dudes for that, like Scott Levine. There's tons of undrafted goalies who are solid enough to just kind of provide some depth in case of emergency. And there's academy goalies if you really are desperate. Yeah, exactly. So um, that's why we didn't really talk about strikers or goalkeepers that much. But center midfield, I think, particularly um, in the defensive midfield, is going to be a bit of an interesting position uh, that we're going to be looking to fill. And in many ways, uh, the midfielders are pretty much essential to the whole thing coming off of that hitch, right? I think because uh, these guys are the link. But not only are they the link, but they're also sort of like the foundation that the team builds itself upon, you know? Like, I think... Uh, they're so the metronome. How, yeah, the metronome with the team. Um, so much of how dominant we were in 2018 was set on how we had the luxury of a guy who could cover as much space as Tyler Adams and someone next to him and Sean Davis who just operated so well in tight spaces and had a pretty good wide range of distribution. So now I think we recognize there's a pretty big spot potentially open at center midfield. It might be filled by Kofi if he goes down to Red Bull too which I think he may to start the season. But after that, like, who really knows, right? Because I think a lot of the uh, center midfielders who were at Red Bull 2 last year aren't really with the team anymore. No, the it's just Chris ones, Lima. Yeah, it's just Chris Lima, exactly. Um, so we're going to need... Um, I think they brought in guys like Steven Echeverria um, in preseason last year to try and uh, go... F- well, he was a Red Bull 2 signing from, like, before preseason. He had already – he signed before yeah. the draft. Like, they skipped the draft with him, and he signed early. Yeah. And uh, I think that was sort of, like, the point that I'm sure is uh, getting to is that um, there's, a, there's a possibility that center midfield may not be as much of a problem by the time the season starts simply because that there are first team options that they could send down but it's always good to have some depth here right I yeah think. i think you kind of want to add like across the organization probably two or three center mids i mean i, I know dyer in his latest article was talking about one veteran which sounds about right and then you add maybe two more to for rb2 then you kind of are too deep there if Kofi goes down to RB2 for some period of time, which seems likely just due to the minutes and him needing to adjust to the pro game. Yeah. And I think uh, when we, particularly when it comes to our center midfielders, I think uh, one of the more important attributes that has become very prominent is this ability to think quickly. Right, because I think once you receive the ball back in transition, you're looking to trigger a forward pass, like basically as soon as possible. So we're looking not just for I think passing ability or passing range, but the ability to make split second decisions in tight spaces. You know, I think Sean Davis is like the perfect mold to discuss when we look for system center midfielders in this mind, because when you watch him play, you know it's very quick. You know, he receives the ball, turns. Spots a teammate for the field, and a ball's gone in basically under 10 seconds. You know, I think that's what we generally look for in center midfielders 
and center midfielders in the system, you know, because we're looking for guys who can play the ball quickly and up the field as soon as possible. So um, I think one name that was kind of thrown around in the uh, pre-draft buzz was uh, Anderson Asiedu, who kind of fits this, uh, def- who's a bit more of this defensive uh, midfield um, prospect, right? I think uh, he's a bit more of a, if I'm not mistaken, covers quite a fair bit of ground. Yeah, he's a kind of your also- traditional six. Kind of, I don't want to compare him to Conte because Conte is one of the best defensive mids in the game. But he has, he there is some similarities. Five five, he's very short, but he's really fast. He covers ground, and he's not afraid to get really stuck into a tackle. It yeah, kind of remains to see see how much he can do moving forward. But he did do some of that. He played more of an eight at UCLA. And he played with the U23s for two years, so they know him well. He also had the best combine day of for day one, like the first games. He was the best player of all the games. Just so calm on the ball. Just played within his game. Some players that try to do too much, he's not that type. He's not going to force an issue. He's just going to keep it simple, connect the passes. He'll look to make that forward direct pass, but it's not. He's not going to force anything. He'll play it sideways instead. Yeah, I think when you talk about um, the changing role of defensive midfielders in the meta as a whole, right? You're you're, you're seeing less of these um, stay-at-home kind of defensive midfielders who go out and shield the back line, you know, the, more of covering defensive midfielders. But rather, you're starting to see a lot more advanced um, uh, destroyers in the mold of Kante and then Tyler Adams, right? You're seeing more proactive defensive midfield play where just simply because of the sheer amount of space that they're capable of covering that they're more likely to harass players higher up the field and uh, not so much win the ball back from deep, but as a result of that, like try and win the ball back like further up the field. You know, I think that's, that's a major tenant tenant of modern defensive midfield play that you're going to be looking pl- to, for players who can do exactly that. And why Asiedu stands out for that exact reason is exactly what you mentioned. You know, like I think, when you look at physical profiles, he's definitely the guy who stands out the most at being able to do that in the collegiate game. You know, like just simply because it's the sheer amount of um, space that he's capable of covering. Once he learns the instincts needed to know where to position himself in the press, you know, I can legitimately see that being giant, right? And defensive midfield, particularly, is one of those areas where. You don't necessarily need to be tall to be a stud, right? Because, I mean, yeah. look, I mean, Gattuso is only like 5'8". Conte is only 5'6". Um, the list goes on and on about diminutive defensive midfielders who just turned into terriers, basically, because of how good they were at shutting other players down, you know? And it's why I think Asiedu is going to be one of those um, interesting names that we should probably target because this is probably the closest that you can get to a potential top tier um advanced destroyer in the draft and um and he can also play as kind of that like holding mid that can just kind of distribute play the simple ball so he's versatile in that sense for me if he's there when they pick at 21 they that should be who they pick because even though it's not the most pressing need in the first round, you might as well just take one of the best available because you can maybe get a Sylvain Coco and a Kuma later in the draft 
I can convert one of them to a, like converting Akuma to a center back is not out of this picture. He's six two. He's kind of fits that mold too. Yeah, I mean, with how much hype there's been around defensive midfielders like in the game in recent years, like really good young defensive midfielders are vibranium, basically. You know, like these are guys that you can sell for a shit ton of money, like on the open market eventually. You learn how to develop them properly. And I think Fernando and I were talking about how having a defensive midfielder who can kind of do both is quite vital, right? I think we talked about Caceres potentially playing a very similar role because of his passing ability from deep, right? And um, I think it'd be interesting to have someone who can exact, who can do both because that gives us a variety of looks, you know, like even though we kind of eschew traditional build-up play, it means that we can start our transition from deeper or maybe it means that we have more um, pat- potential for passing combinations from deep, you know, I think uh, some interesting things to keep in mind there. Um, I don't know. Anyone really have a any any anyone kind of a, keeping a pulse in what other people are saying in terms of targets? No one really kind of projects a center mid to the Red Bulls. I think the common theme of all the mockups is center back, center back, center back. Like everyone's just kind of saying because they're you kind of look. That's the biggest need across the organization from the first team and the second team. There's four on the entire organization (laughs) and you'll use two of them each game so it's kind of the logical mock draft no one's kind of done any second round mock drafts which is really quite a stretch in general (laughs) but most every mock draft i've seen is center back so and there's not many center mids in the draft that I would say, like, fit that Red Bull style. Like, if you think of the some of the top guys, Dumbwell, Tommy McCabe, they're more of your, like, Chris Lima type. They're going to sit a little deeper and just they'll spray the ball on the half turn, find that line-splitting pass, but they're not the most athletic. They're not going to cover a ton of ground back there. Uh, obviously I'm biased, but two names that kind of uh, stood out to me, I think over the years at uh, the under 23s are um, Kentaro Morrison and Kazushige Nobu, but uh, that's for, um, that's for next year. Person. Kentaro Morrison's yeah. a junior. So next year that could be a name to watch. Yeah. See if the uh, Colgate tradition continues. Yeah. Like I, I was going to kind of build on Morrison a little bit because I think he definitely stood out like with the under 23s this year. I know he may not necessarily be a target that we look at this year, but I think what really stood out about this game is that even though he's not the traditional holding midfielder, like he's very polished on the ball and can fire off a whole variety of passes. He just passes and moves so well in space. And he can play multiple positions. They had him play some midfield. He played outside back. I think he played outside back for uh, Colgate as well. So he's very versatile in that sense, which is always nice. Yeah. And especially, like, with how in this system, like, you're going to be – you're more or less going to be conditioned to be trying to play a whole bunch of positions, even though you may not necessarily start there. Because you're more because I think the defensive um, the defensive demands of the system generally ask for players to cover up space wherever they see it, you know, where they're kind of responding to the off ball movements of everyone else in the team. 
So you're going to see potentially like center midfielders pushed a bit more out to the wing to try and close down passing lanes or something. So you have to kind of have to be a bit adaptable at being able to play the ball from a variety of positions once the ball gets turned over. I think that's such an understated aspect of how we play as a unit, you know, like having that comfort at playing the ball from a whole bunch of places all over the field, such an important thing, especially for us and midfielders. Um, Yeah. I don't think people realize how fluid this team is and how fluid these positions are, um, especially in transition and, and especially in, in, in off the ball situations right before that transition. If you don't have that ability to kind of remove yourself from that really t- traditional mindset in terms of like positioning, um, then you're going to have problems. And I think there's, I think if there's a position or part of the field where, where that's extremely important and it's going to be, you know, our center mids. And a lot of times you see some guys kind of struggling with that, where it's not even the on the ball stuff, it's off the ball uh, positioning and understanding of where they need to be in certain moments that may be outside of what they were, where they would normally be um, in different types of styles that a lot of players have, have some. Yeah. I think we saw that in the past with like RB2, Arun Basulovic was a name that comes to mind who kind of didn't fit the system and you didn't always get into the right positions and that hurt his play time. And Chris Lima early in the year took him a little bit to understand where he was supposed to be on the field, where, when the step, when the cover kind of how to move within the system, which is very demanding in general. So it takes it. You need some time to kind of figure it out, but some of these more natural athletes, guys like Tyler Adams, obviously he's, incredibly special but even Caceres they kind of can use their athleticism to cover being out of position at times as they go through those growing pains yeah and and, I mean we we see with the first team you know there's times where Kaku is in the middle and I mean shit if you blink and open your eyes he's on the left there's times where he's on the right there's times where uh, you know, whatever the situation may be, Royer's pushing up as as a second striker before Velo got hurt. You know, were times where he would drop back next to Gaku. There were times where he would actually end up being uh, uh, the guy pushing up, um, basically being a you know being a second uh, a second striker. And this is why I, I, I it's so important for people to understand that that you don't just go and get any player, no matter how good they are, no matter what their name is. You have to get guys who understand and who would fit. And you see more and more uh, as this team evolves in, in, in their style of press, guys who are not like just traditional wingers. They're not a traditional center mid. They're not a traditional defensive mid. They're guys who have the traits. And if you're getting someone who may be a little bit more experienced, guys who have already played in different positions, Gakko is probably a perfect example. There's Our 10 does not play as a true 10 at all. And that's why I think Aku has been so important because he has that experience uh, being a natural uh, natural 10, but he played for a little while out in the wing and you can just see him so naturally move from the inside and the outside. I mean, just so fluidly with, with, with ease, he just knows, he understands. And that is because he has that experience. So when you're looking for guys to bring up, you have to find somebody who can mimic that. You have to find someone who has the at least the ability to – 
uh, be developed into somebody who who has that situational awareness and understanding relative to the tactics where, okay, in this particular moment, you know, I'm in this position here. Well, I don't have to run back to the middle. I can stay out wide for whatever whatever that, that game state is, that game moment is, and still play effectively in that role. And that's, like you mentioned, some guys are just incapable of doing that, whether it's because of athletic issues or, or they just can't grasp um, the tactical part of, of the, you know, being fluid in your positioning. Yeah. You know, I think, um, um, when, when, when we talk about, um, looking at positions, uh, you know, I think I had a thread on Twitter about this, where we need to stop looking at positions as, you know, these absolutes, you know, we stop looking at idealized versions of people who play a certain position, but rather we need to start looking at attributes that fill roles. Which is why I decided. Which is why I think we decided to structure our episode about the draft this way, because I think that's how this team identifies talent. They look at attributes that fit roles, not fucking maestro tens or whatever fucking nonsense. <laughs> makers, right? Technical like, term. Yeah. <laughs> Please use the correct right. term. <laughs> I was getting there, but <laughs> you need you need to put spaces in between every letter, so it's like D I F F E. You know, it's like yeah. I mean, but this is the point that I think we've been trying to get at so much on Twitter because I cannot stress enough that when you play a system as fluid as this one you're probably not going to be solely playing in the position that you start at. You're going to be playing all over the field because you're responding to the movements of everyone else on the field. And it wears the same colors as you do. And you need attributes to play the role that you play on the team to its fullest. Okay? Like, like... You cannot look at every tactical system and think the people playing the positions in each one are the same, have the same roles across all teams. And I think I stress this on Twitter, but I'm going to stress it again here. You know, no two attacking midfielders on different teams play the same role. And the most forward thinking teams will look at attributes of what they need from players who play this role and then fit them in. You know, it's not this so, like, I think people will look at clubs like, oh, Real Madrid, PSG. They have unlimited resources that just lets them sign whoever the fuck they want and figure it out later. Like, when, you do, when you're not in the 1% of clubs worldwide who have that level of financial muscle, you're not going to be able to do the same thing. Even that's just the simple reality of life. Even those big okay. clubs have a lot of players that they buy and then they even with like established managers, they buy for a certain position in a certain system and the player just does not end up working out in that system. He just doesn't fit. Even though they have all this money, they bought a world-class player, one of the best in the world. Like sometimes they just do not fit into what they like they scouted wrong or they just bought based off reputation and the player wasn't able to adapt to what they wanted to do. Like I think the not use Verone, but an actual other Verone, Verone at Manchester United is kind of a perfect case yeah, of oh, yeah. back in the day someone brought in a lot of money, big hype, 
but just never actually fit what Sir Alex Ferguson wanted. Yeah, and it doesn't yeah. mean he's not good and he's not a difference maker. Space, 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 space. Um, he just didn't fit, and and I, people just don't understand that, man. Like, there's good quality top teams are built are getting guys built around what they what they want, not not just this fucking shit posting banter team that's just signing whatever the fuck they want to sign, whoever they want to sign, just because you know whatever reasons. Fernando, you exactly, can, you, you, know? you can at Orlando City next time. You know that, like, yeah, yeah, exactly. That's a perfect example of of why you don't just you don't just sign everyone who who you think you know is is a big enough name or whatever for you. Like, you have to build with purpose. I mean, it, you can run down the list of all the big clubs in the world. Why, you know, I don't know why didn't Chelsea. Yeah, I, I try to sign fucking Ronaldo when he was obviously wanting to leave. Why didn't Manchester United? I mean, I could, you could run down the list of all the big clubs in the world who spend money who didn't go after certain guys because they didn't want to. Because for whatever reason, they felt it wasn't worth the money, or you know, they just didn't fit how what they were trying to do. That this is not a unique thing to this team, and people don't understand that. And I think uh, one understated thing about like why these teams can go out and sign new players every window is because. It's exactly that. Like their financial muscle covers up so many errors in the transfer market, right? You're going to be less likely to, your mistakes become less um, obvious when you can just go out and buy another player in the window to cover up those deficiencies. You know, like that's why. Which is not a reality you know, like, in I a capped salary cap league. You just can't spend, spend, spend. Exactly. Exactly. And, and not. And not only a salary cap league, but a difference maker cap. <laughs> you know, you, you get yeah. three, you get three DPS. That's it. And those are hefty contracts, and those are very big investments. You can't just go, you know, out on a whim and just sign some random person because you know he he did good in whatever team. No, you you really again a top team is going to have a plan, an established plan, a, a, a way of thinking, a way of playing, a way of building. And they're going to go after people, especially when you're limited to three big moves. You're going to make sure you use every single one of those wisely. If not, you end up like LA Galaxy or Orlando or some of these other teams who spent, you know, just completely recklessly based on names and and you know who who's good enough and who's got a fancy enough name in the back of the jersey, regardless of how well they'll fit. That doesn't matter. You know, that's that's how you end up. You end or up they're like Swedish. Yeah, you have a Swedish coach. San Jose. <laughs> yeah. The San Jose Earthquakes have joined the chat, <laughs> apparently. Um. Yeah, like, look, <laughs> MLS has evolved to a point where you can't just spend. Spending is not an answer. It's not. You have to spend wisely. You can spend like a team like, I hate to give them any, any form of credit. <laughs> you could spend, yeah, you, you could spend like Atlanta. And their salary is not even that high. They're, I, they were not even in the top five, I think, in, in, in team salary. But they spend obviously a lot of money on transfers. I mean, the thing that like on the flip side, you have a team. On the flip side, if you look at the top four spending teams, Toronto twenty six million dollars, and they were fucking useless they, <laughs> for twenty. You know, and 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 the they best part about that is because they didn't send. Well, they. I feel like in MOS, if you want to win, you hit on the middle. Like you could waste some money on a DP. Maybe that DP likes his teammates' with girlfriends. <laughs> not mentioning names, but like if you hit on the guys in the middle, like your middle salary guys, some of your TAM guys to the like 
Yep. That's how you win. Like for I we're giving Atlanta way too much credit already, but they hit on the middle. They got Nagby, they got Remedi, and then they had a guy like Laurentowitz, Parkhurst, who stepped up and were solid. So they hit on those middle tier, which covered that they had a DP sitting on the bench because he wasn't actually that great that year. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of like us as well, right? I mean, like, we... we they hit in the draft out. with Gressel. Like. It's kind of like us as well. I mean, we hit so many home runs on the so-called mid-to-low parts, the traditionally considered mid-to-low parts of our roster, because we internally developed guys who exceeded their, yep. pay, their, pay, their pay grade. So yeah. to say, right? Like, like a lawn, why, like, a taxi, a Maria, a Parker, Davis, a even like Tyler Adams, you know? Yeah. Like, yeah. Well, he's homegrown, Davis. so he's kind of like a little different of a sphere for me, but. He's definitely like, like, I mean, like, this is definitely sort of like that sort of mid to the so called mid to low TAM level grade players, right? Yeah, but he wasn't like someone we went out and signed yeah. per se. He was kind of no. yeah. brought up. But like, well, even I mean, like, we could see with Caceres, Caceres, if he plays to the ability that we think he can and hits his potential or anywhere near it. Like we saw in that first game, he had his first start. That will be another hit in the mid, even low level signing that that's just another guy who hit, we hit on. Yeah. I mean, Velo. Yeah. Yeah. Velo. Royer. Yeah. Royer is a perfect example of finding value in that 500, 400 K contract range. Like, you know, like uh, we, we've been saying like all of last year that the real difference makers are not like roster slots one through three, but like four to 25, right? Because every team in the league is going to have the resources to sign two to three big money players. Every team in the league can do that. Those are the same two or three guys who you're going to find on every single roster, you know? What really sets you apart from everyone else in the league is how you build the team around those two to three guys. And even then, you're starting to see a move away from that because you're going to see teams like us who are capable of producing talent that exceeds that pay grade or their roster designation. You know, like you may look at our team and say that like, oh, we only have two DPs. Like, why can't we have three? Now, if you look at what we've done all around our roster, we have guys who would earn DP designations at basically 90% of the teams in the league who don't have that designation. Like you can't look at Aaron long and tell me that he's not, he wouldn't be a DP at some other team. He wouldn't be a DP center back. You can't look at Tyler Adams or you couldn't look at Tyler Adams and tell me that he wouldn't be worth a DP money contract. If he decided to come back to MLS Within the next two, three years. Or if he even just wanted to say, and his contract yeah. was up, like Matt Miazga, they offered him a DP. Yeah, he, 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 he wanted to move on, yeah, which all the be, power to him, would be, but he was... He, yeah, he they, would, they would be TAM players, without a doubt. Exactly. And on top of that, like you can't look at, to kind of fill out my thing, you can't look at Kamar Lawrence or Amir and say that they wouldn't be DP fullbacks in other teams. I mean, like yeah. it's starting to become such a nonsensical thing where DP just means I earn more money than everyone else in the roster. Like, would you really take a Jose Coleman from Orlando City? Would you really take a, I don't know. Sasha Los Rivas. 
Exactly. Sasha like, Fleischer. Like, look, I mean, like, I, I, I'm not against... $1.2 million. I'm not against signing another designated player, but it's not going to be the panacea that people make it out to be. Okay? I mean, it's true that you can bring in... That being able to afford higher levels of salary means that you're able to attract a wider range of talent with a higher ceiling, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to be great if they do not fit what this team wants to do. Okay. I think we can all and, agree and, in that. Yeah. Yeah. And to that point, like, you know, this is for as much as, as much as some people like to rag on the system, I don't think people understand that the system is what has kept us so competitive. And the system is what is what, gives us so much roster flexibility in some ways, even though it may be hard to get very specific kind of guys because you're not building around just three players. You're not picking three superstars and then kind of just saying, okay, what can we do from here? You're building around an idea, around a philosophy, around a style of play. So every single player you get has to have some level, some some basic fundamental level of fitting those positional characteristics where you can plug and play to a certain extent. Yeah, there's going to obviously be a gap from your best to your middle to maybe your your third or fourth choice, but they still have some basic level of characteristics. That's why a guy like Hassan Adam can can play against uh, against NYCFC, and even though he had flaws, he had enough characteristics where he was able to do well in the system and have someone like V in his pocket. This is why you're able to plug in a guy like Duncan who he may not be as good as Amir, he could plug in for a couple of games, start, and do pretty damn well. You can have a, a guy like fucking like like White step in for Bradley Wright Phillips and do a gr- yes yeah, score goal and do a great job against the MLS Cup winners. You know that's why you can you can uh, uh, you can change things around when you don't have Tyler Adams. Like people don't understand the system is what allows us to do these things we don't win a supporter shield without the system not just in terms of style of play but because we have so many guys that have been handpicked who have some form of the basic characteristics that they need for those particular positions they're able to step in and and do things and and get you know get wins look, look how much rotation we saw at the beginning of the year and we got some pretty solid results and this is why yeah, I think it's kind of hard to argue with that. Um, and I think that kind of sums it up for us uh, with regards to this uh, draft preview section. Um, yeah, um, I think we're going to move on. I think now would be a good time to uh, move on to the questions here because we do have three in the mailbag um, this week. So thank you once again for everyone who sent in the question as usual. Um, we're going to start with Helst, who asks us, what do you think my chances are of being drafted in the draft? And, uh, well, Helst, um, buddy, this is MLS, right? Um, look, I'd say with how good our talent development is, I'd say, yeah, sure, why not? 75%. I hope you brought your boots because you start in February. Thanks. Um, I mean, he couldn't be, I think he certainly couldn't, I mean, he couldn't be like, any worse than Sean McLaws, right, Shirley? Oh, I actually or... like Sean McLaws. <laughs> <laughs> Good guy. <laughs> uh, it, it, it was the only guy that I could really think of when it comes to, like, really fungible last guy in the roster kind of things, you know. But listen, like, I, I think that does health to the service. Like, 
Helst is not the last guy in the roster. Like he's definitely a third DP level talent. I mean, aren't right. the third DPs the friends we made along the way? So, <laughs> or is that the difference makers? <laughs> RBNY Twitter is the third DP, actually. <laughs> um, okay, uh, slightly a bit more serious question coming from Once a Metro. Do the Red Bulls have a built-in scouting advantage due to the concentration of low-tier D1 schools in the tri-state area? And I would say, like, not maybe not just a scouting advantage, but also like a development advantage. Like I think we mentioned at the top of the episode, certainly, right? Like just having. Having so many, such a high concentration of schools in this area, like, means that we don't really need to cast our net as wide. And, uh, and uh, you know, I think, like, it, it means that we have a pretty good handle on more or less a whole bunch of guys who play in probably one of the hottest parts of the country when it comes to um, producing talent. You know, I think... You, you can't look at what they've done with Ryder and Colgate and say that St. Francis, you know, Brooklyn. Like, St. Francis, Brooklyn. Yeah. I mean, the list goes on and on, right? I, I think you can clearly see that the links to um, soccer in the tri-state area are very heavily built. And that's reflected in the fact that they hired Carlo Aquista from uh, Adelphi out in Long Island to uh, fill that scouting role. Because I think, you know, like, like, I'm kind of going a bit on a diatribe here, and I'm going to try and reel in my thoughts, but I would say that you can't look at what they've done to develop the amateur scouting network in the tri-state area and say that that hasn't been a quote-unquote difference maker over the years when it comes to bringing in talent from the outside. And so I think to cut a long story short, like, yes, that's the answer to this question. Uh, what do you guys have anything to add? I think the advantage it gives is international. It's like these, a lot of, like if you look at Ryder's roster, I think they have five kids from America. Like that school just hoards these kind of, they have these connections with these scouts and stuff in France and Germany, which is kind of a big thing of the college game is kind of bringing these guys who maybe didn't make it at the youth clubs want to continue playing just to play because they love the game and get an education in the process. So they have connections with agents or whatever who help funnel these French kids to Ryder. They have Spanish kids as well, like Aguinaga. Same thing with like St. Francis. Manhattan has a few French kids. Iona has some international. Like These schools kind of funnel the international kids and I think New York, New Jersey area is kind of an attractive place. It's not it's East Coast, major airport hub. It's kind of easy to get them there. And these schools kind of being lower profile, they don't have, they're not getting the top American players. So they kind of find these hidden gems, in, hidden international gems, and they kind of all congregate in this area rather than like, there's only like Akron will take one player. Maryland will take one or two international players. They're not taking 10. <laughs> like, Ryder's yeah. roster is literally all international. Yeah, it's that, kind of insane. Yeah, it's actually something I never really thought about. And that's such a good point. Um, there, there's so many advantages to to being a development-centric soccer team in this area. Because, I mean, not only do you have the most densely populated area, um, it's extremely diverse. 
uh, you know, you've mentioned it here. The team is now starting to open. You mentioned it. You have 45,000 kids in their youth development system and growing. So whether you're talking about young people or you're talking about, like you mentioned, you know, kind of just some gems that, that, that might just have may have fallen through the cracks overseas. You have, there's so many, so many different ways that we, that this team can, can pick up players um, from so many different backgrounds. And it's, it's, it's definitely a huge advantage that I can't think of any other team in the league uh, that would have. Yeah. Yeah, I can't think of like any area that is that attractive to like international college soccer players because when i look at i've never seen a roster like riders where it's so heavily like every player seems to have international background like you look across college rosters and you'll see one or two three maybe four players who've come from a international academy kind of like a julian gressel to bring up he was german kind of graduated at 23 24 they're come out a little older that maybe a little more pro ready to start anyways because they've had that kind of professional academy experience. I haven't seen anything like that in college soccer to the extent that Ryder and some of these other local smaller schools have it. And, you know, I think, like, this is why when we talk about the MLS draft as a talent acquisition channel, like, it kind of, this phenomenon gets kind of underrated to a degree. Because I think people don't realize, like, just how good it can be sometimes of sneaking in um, academy European Academy talent from abroad into the American soccer sphere, you know? And I think um, I think you're going to be looking, pe- people get kind of swayed by, as you mentioned, like these big, bi- these bigger profile players at bigger schools. And uh, a lot of the uh, attention will be focused a bit more on them. But without realizing that, I think the real value of the draft is in the capacity of, schools such as Ryder and their ability to bring in these like lesser heralded um, players from abroad that wouldn't be able to, uh, that I think teams wouldn't be able to. Uh, they don't get the exposure. Yeah. That like an ACC school, you can watch an AC, any ACC <coughs> game on ESPN three, any, like any game you can't, I don't know where you could find a Ryder game on any like easy access channel. <laughs> yeah. But can't even find it on YouTube. Like, so it's kind of those bigger conferences get the hype, and those players get the notoriety just because they're so the access to them is so easy. And then you have these guys like a Florian Velo, a Vincent Bezicord, who kind of slip through the cracks at these smaller schools where they're almost just playing soccer to just extend their career a bit maybe it turns into a pro opportunity, but it's not maybe the first reason they came here. Yeah. And I think in regards to that, like, I think, you know, talent identification and talent about talent identification and talent acquisition to a degree is a numbers game. And the more guys that you can look at, no matter where they are, the more guys that you have a handle on and the more guys that you look at, the more likely it is that you're going to uncover someone really good. You know, it's not just, it's not a matter of, you know, it's not like you're trying to go out there and look for the Holy Grail. You know, it's more like you're panhandling for gold to a degree, right? It's like you're seeing whatever comes in through your channel and you're sifting through to find sort of like the best you can get. This is why we talk, is what we talk about when we talk about churning so much. You know, it's like just getting as many people in as humanly possible and just letting the better ones stick. 
and but to do that in a way unlike other teams in USL, right? Where they're just sort of trying where they're just kind of thrown in there and not really given a direction, not really given direction as to what they're looking for or how to play. But rather we're weaponizing that process. You know, we're throwing kids in there, sure, but we're throwing kids in there with the intent and with a with an intent of kind of giving them a criteria of what we want to see when we evaluate their talent, you know, and I think that's such an important difference when we talk about um, talent development, I think, uh, in um, talks about talent development from the amateur to professional level. Um, give me a, a couple seconds because I accidentally closed Twitter um, to read the last question that we had in the mailbag. Uh, okay. Um, this one coming from Alex Sassaroli, the one and only. That rhymed. That was cool. Um, what kind of differences do you see in how RBNY drafts with their development system, RB2, and the set style of play than how most teams draft? And I think I was just about getting to this, right? This whole episode was dedicated, I think, to answering this question. But to uh, reiterate, you know, we're looking specifically for attributes to fit roles in the team you know i think like um i'll i'll definitely say that we're not really um that we're we have a very set criteria on what we're looking for in each position because each position in the team has such a specialized role in the overall system right where they have very specific movements and reactions to how the rest of the team moves and the capacity to learn that or is more or less um, probably the biggest difference that I can identify. Oftentimes I think you see other MLS teams who are just willing to take the best player available and hopefully he sticks, you know, with some seasoning, but you're, you're seeing it a bit to a much more weaponized degree with us here. And, uh, you know, I think it relates back as well to what we talked about when we talked about the Red Bull under 23s. Like, this is sort of like their, it's sort of like their taster course in learning the system. And the ones who kind of stand out or they identify as having potential are the ones that we end up taking in the draft. So with how, when we talk about the vertical integration of the organization top to bottom, I think this is what really stands out compared to some other teams in MLS because they don't have that level of integration. Yeah, I also think, in theory, they can buck the trend of even looking at need. Like, if they had, if they wanted to think, just take best available for the system, and it happens to be a winger, they can, in theory, take that, even though the first team is loaded in wingers, because they don't have to find it. They're not even drafting or for that first team roster spot. They're not even looking like a lot of teams, even in the first round, even later, are going to say, oh, maybe this guy can find a spot on the first team roster. Maybe he'll play with our two team. We don't even like cut. We just cut to the chase. You're signing with Red Bull, too. That's where you're like, you're not even taking a first yeah. team roster spot. Yeah. It's just out yeah. of the picture. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I think I touched on this before when, when I mentioned that, you know, a, a lot of. A lot of teams aren't structured like us, you know. There's teams out there that don't that that have an affiliate. So if you're a team that has an affiliate, well, you know how much how much is this draft really worth it to you? Well, you either don't care, you're kind of just going to draft someone and just at least get through, you know, preseason, cut them at some point, 
or you're in a situation where you have to, you're going to pick the best available period because you need bodies. You're, you're, you have some kind of outside hope that possibly this player can, can fight for a spot. Um, even if you have a two, a, a second team, how many teams really truly integrate their second team with their first team? Not many. So you're just kind of, you know, you're getting someone and cross your fingers with us. It's, it's like Eric said, you're, you're looking for very specific things. Um, but it's, you're clearly going straight to Red Bull too. You're not going to see the first team. If you were good enough to see the first team, you wouldn't be going to the draft. You somehow would have been plucked at some point before then. Yeah. Like Brian White scored 20 something goals in PDL. Like they knew his talent level, but they were like, yeah, you're not quite ready yet. You're going to exactly work harder. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So, you know, how, how this team develops across the board, whether it's developing internally from, from uh, through their, their, RDS and Academy pipeline to the second team and then eventually the first team or just, you know, guys like, uh, like Giannis, just guys from overseas that they're bringing in who with the intention of developing or going through the, the draft route guys who, you know, it's something that MLS does and okay, fine. Let's, let's see who are the best. You're already scouting these kids to begin with. Um, and yeah, just, just see what you can see. Who's the best player that fits what you need, yeah, and w- with the attention of knowing that you have your second team that they're probably going to spend the entire season on, where they can just grow, they can develop. You can you can just see what they have and and go from there. Again, Rebel Two has to you know that that's a roster that has they need to get thirteen players at least. That's kind of like yeah. the minimum. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it's a benefit where you need bodies uh, to fill up your roster, but that's that's a, a pure development team. So they're either going to develop to what you need or they're not. So for the team, it's it's a win-win. Yeah, I mean, this is what we talk about when we talk about the churn, right? It's just churning involves taking continuous flyers. See who sticks. Exactly. It takes continuous flyers on guys. And if they sink, cut them. If they swim, you can work with them, right? And from there... They get one more year. Exactly. Yeah, like... Um, it's very rare that you kind of see like a guys that you bring in at the lower levels like last more than maybe two or three years because they're either with the first team or they're done. I think that's what made Jordan Scarlett such a surprise when he got brought back for his third year with Red Bull Two. I think. Um, yeah, he was on my cut list. I was like, yeah, no one ever gets three years. Yeah, right. I think <laughs> only Bonomo got three years, but his were kind of like he came in halfway one year, was injured halfway another year, so. Isn't this Scarlet's third year? Yeah, this is going to be Scarlet's third year. But he was kind of injured this year, so maybe they still they uh, see the yeah, potential yeah. and hoping when he's fully fit, he kind of returns to the Jordan Scarlet that we saw the first year. But he's injury gotcha. prone, which I don't know. Yeah, and I that's a whole other. That's another podcast. Uh, I think they kind of go on a bit of a side. I mean, like. That's why I was kind of surprised that they cut Kevin Pollitz after one year. Like I, I certainly thought that you had something that you could uh, build. Yeah, I'm a Pollitz fan, but supposedly he didn't fit the system, which is kind of a – he was a homegrown signing. They were going to see it's a little easier to take a flyer on a homegrown. Just He was a top defender in college. Maybe you can mold him, but I think they decided he's probably better in the more traditional center back style than the – high press where because he's not the most supreme athlete he's very athletic but he's better as a kind of a sweeper style that kind of similar to fidel in that that he'll 
better kind of covering the ground behind you rather than being the one who steps and sets the line of confrontation. Yeah, you know, I guess, uh, you know, it boils down to what we were talking about when it comes to, uh, you know, physical tools, right? Because uh, you do have to have that foot speed to play that emergency defense that we demand from our center backs so much. And I guess, you know, I think it's a good time to reiterate that that's probably the most essential thing and that that, that um, sets the criteria and is probably the most essential thing that differentiates us from other MLS teams. You know, like we have such a strict criteria and level of evaluation of what we want to see from players on a year by year basis that I think people who don't show that, you know, like they're just privy to just cut them, cut them loose and move on to the next, you know, like that's just how high the bar is set at this organization. You know, if you don't prove that you have a spot in your first year, like you're more or less done. You know, I think you're not... like Sorry. the USL level is not at the highest that so many guys are making that jump up. So you really have to show it. Like you really have to prove that you are of that quality. You really are so much better than everyone else at the USL level. You or you do something that's so specific, like. Alex Muil never really played that much USL because he showed he had a very specific skill set that was exactly what Jesse Marsh wanted in that position at that time. Yeah. Like some guys like played more USL just because they needed the minutes, the seasoning, the getting used to the pressure and some use it to actually prove that they can do it. Kind of like Aaron Long. He proved that he was far better than anyone in USL. Like he was clear far and ahead, the best center back in USL. And he got his moment in the first team, his, and then he took it even further the next season, this season. Yeah. And I think that kind of just about wraps it up. If anyone uh, has anything else they'd like to add or uh, no one. Okay. Well, yeah, I mean, I think that just about does it here on the Metro Fan TV weekly rundown. Uh, this was our first episode of 2019, so if it seemed a bit um, off, like remember we're in preseason mode as well, and uh, you know I think uh, we'll be moving through the gears as the off season r- and runs along. Hope to be hearing, hope to be coming to you with more news soon. But you know I I can't we can't predict transfers, so neither can the comms team. So. I guess please stop adding the official account on Twitter to sign no, someone. Tell them to the announce Omir. Announce Omir. That's, that's, <laughs> that's the campaign. We have a rumor. We now need it announced. Yes. Yeah, I'll take that. It's a matter of time, right? Like usually the homegrowns are the first domino in the uh, offseason window. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe, yeah. Hashtag bring back Rizza. <laughs> um, I guess uh, on that, like uh, on the free Omir train, we'd like to thank Friedlander for coming on and starting our next campaign. Thank you for having me. me. Thank you. Thank you for guiding us through the MLS draft though. We hope to be uh, talking, coming to you live again with a review of the draft this time, removing that letter P from that word um, as we see what shakes out on Friday. So uh, yeah, I mean, without further ado from me and Fernando, thank you once again for listening. And if you made it this far, as always tweet 69, to Franco Panizzo, the most useless journalist in the world. Um, on that note, Metrofan TV <laughs> saying, 
Peace out. <laughs> and anyone going to Chicago for the draft, we hope you have a great time. But Let me know how to pop- that, a lot of popcorn. Eat a lot of popcorn. <laughs> um, shout out to John Wallenick. And, um, you know, like, just try and not get arrested or anything. Like, that'd be pretty fucked up. Uh, <laughs> anyway, peace out. Metro Fan TV saying, see ya.